Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Hey y'all, and welcome to Touchy Subjects Podcast, the podcast that aims to break the silence that tends to come with conversations around domestic and sexual violence. I'm Sean. And I'm Amanda. And today we're going to be talking about men's violence against men uh, with special guest Brad Muhort. So thank you for joining us today, Brad. Thank you, Sean. It's glad to be here. So we're excited to have this conversation today. Um, As our listeners may know, we've done a few episodes lately about men. Um, So this one kind of just adds to the list of episodes that you get to enjoy about it. Um, But Brad, do you want to quickly introduce yourself to our audience? Certainly. So I have my own history of being a victim of violence through bullying, primarily when I was an adolescent, and then became a bully myself on occasion. So have experiences kind of on both sides of experiencing the the patterns and the cycle of male-on-male violence. And through my adult life, I've spent a couple of decades doing my own healing work to recover, heal, find peace within myself after the violence I experienced when I was younger. And for about the last decade, I've also been working with other men as a somatic teacher and as a coach to help other men heal, find peace after they've had experiences with violence. Yeah, I love the work that you do, Brad, especially because uh, as a man myself, uh, growing up, I know that I have committed violence against other people. I've had violence committed against me from other men. Um, It really feels like a universal kind of experience amongst men is that we have at some point or another either experienced violence or committed violence. So I love the work that you do, um, and we'll be sure to mention it towards the end. Uh, kind of giving the audience a bit more about that, as well as you have a book that has come out, and we'll be sure that they get to hear about that later as well. Um, but really jumping into our discussion today, just to kind of give our audience a bit of a preface here, um, what is men's violence against men? Because it sounds really easy to understand with just that, but do you want to go into that a little bit for us, Brad? So male-on-male violence happens on many levels. At the most extreme, we could look at what is happening in Ukraine right now. And certainly violence is being perpetrated beyond just men. However, in in the battle, at least a great deal of it is very severe male-on-male violence. And fortunately, that level of violence... uh, I've certainly never experienced that. And in for those of us, let's say in North America, most of us have never experienced uh, other than soldiers who have, you know, gone on active duty have not Mm -hmm. experienced that level of violence. However, even there, the, the bully on the playground and that that type of interaction, certainly the, the scale of it, the severity of it is completely different. And yet, any of that violence anywhere on that scale can very much cause trauma and mm-hmm. affect affect the lives of not only the victims but also the perpetrators because something that i think is 
often not mentioned is that perpetrating violence is certainly traumatizing as well. And so all of these all of these types of violence that all affects men and men, boys and men. And I also see it as being cycles. Uh, I'm going to say I think it's rare that someone who is perpetrating violence, whether against a boy, against a man, against a woman or child, it's rare that a male committing violence has not already been a victim of violence. Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of other discussions that can be had around violence. If you have experienced, and this is a bit more of a overbroad arching term here for the violence, but if you've experienced racism in your community, that is violence that has been perpetrated against you. It's we have all in some form or way have experienced some kind of violence. And yeah, maybe it's never going to be to the scale of a survivor of domestic violence who has been beaten by their partner or somebody who has been, who's experienced rape or a sexual assault. But everybody who's experienced violence has some form of tra trauma or response to it. And I think being willing to have those discussions on, well, yes, my experiences are not anywhere near as severe as yours. It's still an experience that has shaped how I interact with other people. It's still an experience that shapes how I view the world around me. Absolutely. And like to add to that, how male on male violence is in so many ways, almost seen as acceptable, if not condoned in our culture, in our schools, you know, there's this, this expression, boys will be boys, which in some sense is accepting and even maybe labeling it as inevitable that boys are going to be violent with each other. And I actually like turning that expression around a little bit and saying that traumatized boys will traumatize other boys. And I don't think it is inevitable as, as much as it is considered like, okay, that's just the way it is such that it can be hard to identify like, oh yeah, I've been traumatized by this incident that, you know, was just dismissed when I was in school as boys will be boys or something like that. I don't think that has to be inevitable. It's embedded deeply in our culture. And I think there are other ways. Right. I mean, if we're talking about like the historical, you know, where a lot of this comes from. Yeah. You know, a thousand years ago, men were required to combat with other men for scarce resources and things like that. So like a lot of that culture kind of gets ingrained, but we've evolved so much beyond that, that we don't have to keep reverting back to this, this you know, pecking order or, you know, whatever you want to call it, that men feel the need um, and society places that on them to, you know, be like the the king of the hill kind of a thing. Yeah, with especially with looking at that historical context there, Amanda is like, well, yeah, men had that need to be able to fight for those scarce resources. Men had that need to be protectors. We don't necessarily need that anymore it's like resources aren't scarce enough for a majority of us there are people who definitely still deal with scarcity of resources or availability to resources and that's a different conversation but in terms of having to go out and 
either hunt or attack or destroy another tribe in order for you to be able to get the resources that were very limited, that doesn't exist anymore. We are able to have these conversations to help hopefully reduce violence because as men, we've grown up believing that we are supposed to be violent people. Like you said, Brad, the boys will be boys things. Like if when I had a bully physically beat up my friend in middle in middle school, uh, it's boys being boys or they had an argument, so they fought it out. It's a normalized behavior that shouldn't be normalized. We have the ability to have conversations and talk, but as guys, we are raised that anger and violence is your first response. Talking it out and expressing those emotions, that's not something that gets taught to us. And not not even just first response. Like a lot of boys and men are taught that that's their only response. That's their only acceptable Mm -hmm. response in the culture that we have. And um, so, you know, just being able to have conversations like this and get it out there into the world to just be able to let men talk and to accept that, you know, they have made mistakes and committed violence and that doesn't define who they are and who they are going to be in the future. Right. And I think uh, a key component of changing the culture is to have conversations and change the definitions, create art, create new definitions of what masculinity means and what it means to be a man. Because in so many ways, in our culture, being a man, especially being a powerful man, a strong man, these types of things require at least a capacity for violence, if not expressions of violence. And as you both have alluded to, we're no longer, that's no longer what the world is like, at least for most of us, it's not necessary. And I like to see, to see new definitions of manhood in including vulnerability, uh, emotional and vulnerability and authenticity and, uh, and care and respect. And it's, these definitions of masculinity are at least not yet mainstream in the culture. So it actually does take a lot more introspection and, and work to, to find our own ways of, Oh, this is what masculinity means to me. This is, this is how I'm going to define for myself what it is to be a man rather than these kind of conventional definitions that involve capacity for violence looking at how we're raised to believe what masculinity is, it's very restrictive as men. If we're only living up to the expectations that are created for us, where we have to be strong protectors, we cannot express our emotions. We have to be breadwinners. If we're living up to be believe that those are the only ways we can be a man, we are no longer allowed to express ourselves in any other way. And if we're not allowed to express ourselves in any other way, Inevitably, when we get into a relationship where maybe we're not the breadwinners or maybe we get into a relationship where eventually there will be a fight because there will always be an argument at some point. If we as men have only been taught that to solve problems, you have to solve your problems through violence or anger or because you can't express your emotions, the only thing you have is anger or aggression. What inevitably is going to happen when that argument comes up? We're not taught how to have those conversations or to express what we're feeling. 
we're taught to push that problem down or solve that problem by violence or anger. And by controlling the situation, which is where the root of, you know, all domestic violence comes from is, you know, power and control in that relationship. And I think that relationships between men have such a struggle with that power dynamic because they're both taught so often that they have to be the ones in control. They have to have the power. So what do you do when two men are in any kind of relationship with each other that, I mean, I'm not just talking romantic, I'm talking friends, I'm talking family. And how do you navigate that? And I want to, I want to make it clear here too, that if you are a man and you like being the breadwinner and you aren't that guy, that guy who is, express expresses their emotions or likes to be that really emotional kind of guy that's okay you do not have to live your we're not telling tell you you have to live your life one way or the other because again that becomes very restrictive but as a man you should be able to feel that you can express yourself in the way that you most feel comfortable as long as you're not hurting somebody else you should be able to express yourself how you feel because that's what's going to make your life better, but also your relationships better. Using the friend group example, Amanda, if you're a guy in a group of friends of a bunch of guys, not all of you can be leaders. Not all of you can be the quote unquote alpha in the group, because if everybody's a leader, nobody's a leader, which is why then you have men who will often compete against each other to saying like, Oh, I had sex with this many girls or blah, 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 whatever it, whatever, stock they have in that group to show that they are the quote-unquote manliest man in that group when if you're in a group of friends where you don't feel like you have to compete with each other to be the leader or to be the manliest man in the group it allows for you to have those deeper connections with the men in your life it allows for you to be able to have those friendships that are going to be really nurturing to your overall life because you're building connections instead of trying to build yourself up to be the best out of everyone. And I would, I would add to that, that I think some of the, the inability or at least the challenge of interacting with other men in the way you, you described beautifully there, Sean, in, in that way that I would think of as being rich and supportive for, for, for men and boys, the challenge very often comes from trauma that has experienced. Everyone wants to be alpha. Well, probably part of the reason is because the alpha male doesn't get picked on. And so having experienced trauma before, everyone wants to be the alpha male who doesn't get picked on. Everyone wants to be the tough guy in the group. Everyone wants to be the leader so that they have the safety of of those people around them and and supporting them and looking up to them and so much of this i think actually does come from trauma and you know this this cycle of violence as i alluded to earlier i think it is rare for a man who has not experienced been a victim of violence himself to act to be violent against others whether that is other boys, men, women, children. 
this is this is a cycle and so to to prevent violence against anyone we need to prevent violence from where it's starting from men men and boys are committing the most violence against everyone other men women children and trying to prevent violence against women children with while we ignore that many men are victims of violence as well i think is missing a very key point in in healing and improving this whole this whole system this whole all of the cycles all these cycles of violence and just who we are as humans it's interesting because it's very much also how the movement around preventing domestic or sexual violence has grown is obviously when it first starts primary focus is on women who are victims because a vast majority of those reporting those types of crimes were women who were talking about those experiences it was women who were talking about those experiences so therefore they're the ones who needed the focus and they still do their women are a majority of the victims of domestic and sexual violence until violence against them is ended we cannot truly end any type of violence so having those conversations is still important but like you said brad if we're excluding men from that victim conversation we're still missing victims we're still never going to end domestic or sexual violence if we aren't including men in that conversation we're never going to end domestic and sexual violence if we aren't including members of the lgbtq plus community in that conversation because those are people who are also experiencing violence but like you said a majority of everyone who's experienced violence has experienced it from a man Yes, there are women who commit violence against men. There are women who commit violence against women. But if we're looking at our two most common forms of violence, it's men's violence against women and then men's violence against other men and boys. Right. So while, yes, guys listening to this, it may sound like we are just harping on how men are bad and commit violence. We know most men aren't going to do that. Right. But we know that most victims of violence have experienced it from a man. And if we're trying to truly solve this issue, we have to focus first on the people who are committing the most violence. And I think one thing that maybe um, would be good to go back and talk about a little bit again is how you don't recognize a lot of the things that are happening as violence. You don't recognize it as trauma because like you both have said, that's just the way things are. That's the way you grew up. That's what you're taught. But if we can go back and look at, you know, your, maybe your father treating you a certain way because they need to, you know, make you tough for the world. Like that's violence that was committed against you. And while you might not recognize it as violence because it was parenting, it's still trauma and that's still affecting you in your later relationships. Yeah. I, because of how we, I say we, as in a very general statement have raised men um, specifically from a very young age is just think about how we teach boys to express their interest in a girl in elementary school. What do we tell girls? If a guy is pulling her hair, Oh, it means he likes you. What are we telling boys when they get into a fight on the playground? 
It's like, oh, well, that was expected. So we're teaching both boys and girls growing up that the expectation here is that men are going to be violent. So if that's the expectation, if that's the rule, when I eventually commit violence against somebody, I'm just following the rules that have been laid out for me. But it's looking at also then groups of guys. If you're trying to figure out which one of you is going to be the leader of the group, or if somebody has called into threaten your masculinity, well, what's the quickest way guys for us to get back into our man box or the quickest way to prove that we are the manliest man? We got to beat him up. If we can win a fight against another guy, we have proven that we are stronger, tougher, and more of a man than they are. So because of the expectations that are put on us as men to prove that we have to be the best, well, part of being the best is proving to others that you're better than them, which inevitably turns into violence because that's the expectation for us. Right. And it just it goes back to, um, you know, an othering situation where it's you against someone else, whether that's a person that you view as, you know, weaker, you're trying to, you know, um, establish your dominance over whatever the fact is. And we're just we're putting people in those boxes of me and them. And that's that's not how we can keep moving forward and evolving in this life. And then we even have the socially condoned violence and state condoned violence, which we see in sports, uh, UFC, boxing. These are, these are expressions of violence that are welcomed and even glorified in our society. Even, even football as a sport could many in many ways be seen as a fairly high level of violence and certainly with the container that it's held in perhaps less traumatizing than many other forms of violence but nonetheless i would say does have is part of all of this cycle of violence and then even getting into uh you know, soldiers going going to war the majority of whom are are men especially when you know one's getting into the uh the very active and 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 severe uh severe combat and this is this is state condoned violence culturally condoned violence and in when when these are so foundational in many respects to our society, our culture, our politics. I think even these other smaller forms of violence are hard to hard to resolve, are hard to even see as hard to even see as problems and as traumatizing when there's when there's so much violence that is condoned and and um, and even pushed upon us and mandated. Mandated, yes. <laughs> I love using football for this discussion a bit because um, so there's a program called Coaching Boys into Men. Um, um, if anyone's listening and that sounds interesting to you, please look it up. It's a great program, but it has discussions around how the expectations for you on the basketball court, the expectations for you on the football field, the soccer pitch, those expectations may not translate to your everyday life. While there's some expectations that will, like 
the qualities in leadership, the qualities of teamwork, things like that. When you're playing a sport that's a contact sport that does require some violence, it's understanding that while you're on the field, that is okay and acceptable. But as soon as you step off that field, that is no longer okay or acceptable for you to do. And it's a really difficult conversation because like, well, it's okay in one setting, but why is it not okay in another? So it's helping boys understand that while you're on the field, the confines of that sport are the rules that you're following are the rules that you have consented to to follow while you're on the field. So if I were to play soccer, for example, once I'm on that field, I have consented to the rules of the game. If I have a soccer ball at my feet, someone comes through, slides and hits the ball way first, and then I fall over them and hurt myself. That was part of, they followed the rules. It was perfectly okay, perfectly legal contact. I can't be upset about that. I mean, I can be upset if the call doesn't go my way, but I'm not going to be upset because those were the rules that I agreed upon once I stepped onto that field. If I'm off that field, I have no longer agreed to have somebody come and tackle me from my feet. If I play football, I've agreed to get tackled by the linebacker who's probably weighs way more than I do. But once I have stepped off the field, I have not agreed to have a random guy just come and tackle me. So we have the expectations for what is acceptable on the field, but as soon as you step off that field, understand that the traits of leadership, the traits of teamwork, those are the things we want you to take from this. Don't take from the sport that you're playing that violence is acceptable and that violence is how you solve your issues because when you play defense in football, using violence is how you get the opposing offense off the field. So I think looking at recognizing that as we are raising young men and boys, having conversations with them about there may be a time where using violence is either okay or acceptable or is going to be necessary. I am never going to tell somebody, do not act in self-defense. If you have to use violence to get yourself out of a situation to be safer, please do not feel as though I am saying, well, good luck. Don't use violence because being violent is bad. If that's how you're going to get out of there and keep yourself safe, please, please use self-defense. If you are somebody who plays football, if you are somebody who enjoys playing first-person shooters, exposing yourself to violence is not going to be the thing that makes you a violent person. While these things do help normalize violence in our communities, they're not going to be the causes of you being violent. So please, Feel free to enjoy those games because I know I'm going to continue to enjoy Warzone and continue to enjoy watching football every Thursday, Sunday, and Monday, and Saturday when Michigan does well like the past two seasons. <laughs> but don't allow for the violence that you are taking in through media to be the thing that is going to dictate how you then interact in your everyday life. While, yes, these things normalize violence, it's important to remember that that is the consented to violence that is happening versus you going out into the world and deciding that you're beating somebody up because they said something to you that you didn't like. I love right. your perspective on that, Sean, and very much agree with it and want to just say a little more about the, the self-defense aspect that you, that you, you touched upon. I don't think it's ever acceptable to 
initiate violence or mm -hmm. to escalate violence. But certainly, I mean, there's there's people who vow to, you know, nonviolence and and won't ask, you know, won't won't even respond to violence against them. And, and that's that's wonderful. I respect that and admire that. However, it's not, it's also I also wouldn't hold anyone to that. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say that I I would you know have committed to never even res never respond with violence no matter what. Certainly, uh, a threat to my own well being or my 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 or my wife's that I didn't see any any way around. I I might respond with with violence in self-defense i would absolutely avoid ever escalating violence or initiating it which again i don't think is ever acceptable but uh, i also don't want to to set the expectation that you know nobody should ever fight back or anything like that because the reality is that that is in at least the way the world is right now that's sometimes necessary for for survival so then moving the conversation forward a little bit, because Brad, you and I have both mentioned now that we have both experienced violence, we have both committed violence. What are some steps that men can take to start to heal from that violence, whether they were ones who committed it or they have experienced violence? What are steps that we can take to start healing so we're not then using that trauma in going out and perpetrating more violence? I think the first thing is just to recognize the violence that we have been involved with and that that violence, even if it was fairly small scale violence, may have left an imprint upon us, may have left trauma in its wake. And I think just even recognizing that is, <clears throat> excuse me, even recognizing that is a very important first step. And, and I want to ident just emphasize again that this doesn't need to be extreme violence that we're talking about for it to have had an impact. I've, I've never experienced, you know, the really, I've never been in a gang. I've never been in a war zone. In some sense, the violence that I've been involved with is fairly ordinary. And yet it still, it still had impacts upon, it still has impacts upon me. Even after doing a lot of work, I still see ways that, 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 that comes up in, in sometimes surprising ways. So recognizing the violence we've, we've been involved with, becoming aware of our stories and what can be really I'm, I'm going to say is important for at least many men is sharing these stories, you know, often with a professional listener of some kind, a, a therapist, coaches, different, there's many different professionals who can, who can be your, your receiver of your stories. And I think what's really important there is to have someone who can hear your stories and receive them without you know holding you in without without judgment without labeling you without villainizing you and gives you the opportunity to take what might be shameful difficult to admit even to yourself 
and to bring that to the light of day, to have light shone upon it and to be able to grow past it, evolve past it. And it's not denying it, it's, it's including it in, you know, in who you are, who you are today. And it doesn't define you, but it does affect you and really owning that and being clear about it. So that's what I see as kind of the first step in healing for, for most people. I think that deeper levels of healing come through, come through the body, come through somatic practices. When we uh, are victims of violence, the violence happens. When we're victims of physical violence, at least the violence happens to our bodies. When we perpetrate physical violence, we do it with our bodies against another body. And so I think somatic practices, practices that really go into our bodies and bring more awareness and release of tension and patterns, that is, that's how to access deeper levels of healing. Yeah. That first step is probably going to be the most difficult for a lot of people on recognizing what their past experiences are and coming to terms with maybe they have done harm to other people. I've mentioned it multiple times on different episodes that I have not been the greatest partner in previous relationships before. I know that about myself. I know that I have done things that definitely have hurt people. Recognizing that is a really hard thing to do because nobody wants to have that looking in the mirror moment where they're like, huh, maybe I am part of the problem. <laughs> but it's coming to terms with that. It's, and it takes a lot of work. Like you're not, I highly recommend everybody see a therapist at some point because it's incredibly helpful. But the biggest bump for me was once I recognized that, oh crap, I've done harm before. I'm a bad person. And that label was what I had labeled myself for a while. It's like, I'm a bad person. I don't deserve good things. And then that also wasn't really helpful in relationships with dating partners, with friends. But I feel like many people have a tendency to look at the world in black and white and is either you're a good guy or a bad guy. You've done something bad. You've done something good. When most people are shades of gray, we've all done good things. We have all done bad things. Those individual moments don't define who we are. While our experiences do grow us into who we become, it's we have to understand that when you do something that you don't like, you learn from it. You don't perpetrate that behavior again. You grow from these experiences to make yourself a better version of yourself. So if you have, if you're listening and you have committed violence, if you have done harm, I'm not saying that that makes you a bad person. You have done bad things, but you can learn and grow from those to one, not do those behaviors again so you're not harming other people, but then you're able to use those experiences to help others, hopefully not do those things that you've done. Right. There's this, you know, this whole concept that 
I feel like a lot of us were raised in is that you have to experience everything for yourself, you you know, and I think that's bull. Like, what are other people experiencing this for? How can we, you know, learn some lessons from some things that, you know, have already happened? Like, we're here to teach each other. We're here to learn from each other. And if I can learn that these behaviors cause harm from someone else and I never have to commit them myself, then that's an experience I didn't need to have. I don't need to experience that. So, you know, and this just goes back to to all of the things that I feel like we've kind of been taught and this is how we've grown and this is how we've lived. And maybe that was good in a time, but that's not the time that we're in now. We're in our own and we have to make it our own. I will also add in here, if you are somebody who has who has experienced violence, I am in no way saying that the person who committed violence against you is not a bad person because to you they've committed violence, so therefore they have done a bad act, and therefore you may view them as a bad person, and that is okay. I will never tell somebody who I have harmed that they should not view me as a bad person because in their experiences of what I have given them, I showed them that I was someone who would do bad things. But we have to create spaces in our communities for people who have done bad things to learn from those so they don't do it again. Because like you said, Brad, someone who has experienced violence is probably somebody who may commit violence in the future. And if we're not allowing for that person who then commits violence to learn to not commit that violence, they're going to keep doing it. Now, if somebody is being told that their behaviors are not acceptable, that those are bad behaviors and they shouldn't do those things, and they continue to do those bad behaviors, then that's another discussion that can be had. But if somebody is genuinely, genuinely wants to change what they're doing, we have to create a space for them where they don't feel like they're a bad person. They recognize they're a bad person because they're doing the work to not do those things anymore. I like to kind of see through the lens of principles and then beyond that, getting to forgiveness and compassion. And I think early in the healing process, becoming clear about the principles that we, that we aspire to hold is really important. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that it's a principle for me, I didn't put it in that terms before, but effectively it's a principle for me that I will not initiate violence or escalate violence, but that I might respond to, to violence with violence in, in self-defense, but only in those circumstances that the only violence that it's acceptable is in self-defense. These are, I see as principles. And until we know what our principles are, it can be quite gray in terms of looking at our past behavior, what we've done and what's acceptable or unacceptable to us. Once we have clarity on our principles as well, that gives us guidance for how we want to act in the future. And it also gives us a lens to look back at what we've done and to be able to recognize clearly where we have uh, violated our the principles that we now hold. 
And I think another important part of the healing process is to find compassion for ourselves and forgive ourselves. And certainly compassion for others and forgiving others can be important aspects of a healing journey as well. But I think having the principles, clarity about the principles is essential to to have down quite clearly before getting into forgiveness and compassion. Because without having our principles, the forgiveness can become quite almost dismissive of our past Mm -hmm. acts that Mm -hmm. that we you know that we now regret according to our principles i think it's important both to have clarity oh i did this i committed this violence or did this thing that i i regret doing according to the principles that i that i hold and the principles that i want to live up to and I'm going to forgive myself for that because it doesn't do me or anyone any favors to just keep beating myself up for it. I know it was unacceptable. I have feelings about that. I have, you know, I I've had that experience in myself and I'm going to forgive myself, have compassion for myself in order to move on in, in my life, in to really reach a, a deeper level of healing such that I can um, be a contributing member of society and be a force of healing in the world through my being now. Right. There are things that happen in our lives and sometimes those things suck. Like just to be blunt about it, you know, we've been traumatized and, There are things that we do in life because of being traumatized. And while those things are still our responsibility, it doesn't mean that we have to carry that weight forever. There's always a chance to redeem yourself, to, you know, I'm not religious, but like atone for those sins that have happened. And if we don't allow everyone that grace to be able to grow and move on, then they're still living in that trauma. They're not going to heal if they can't forgive themselves for those things that have happened. And we often phrase trauma as something that has happened to someone. But in that definition, that can also be well, my, I've been, I've, I know that I've done wrong. I know that I've done harm. That recognition then, and me sitting with, okay, now I'm a bad person because I've done those things. That really dictates how I'm interacting with other people. Someone's experienced trauma, those interactions that caused that trauma dictate how they interact with others. Part of someone's healing journey may be realizing that, hey, maybe the things that I've done have actually impacted or traumatized me in a way, and maybe not not a severe trauma, but a trauma nonetheless that needs to be worked on and worked out. Because if, as using myself again as the example, if I were to just still be sitting in the place of I'm a bad person because I've done bad things. I would not be able to contribute to my dating relationship, to my friendships, to my relationships with my family, to my work, 
I wouldn't be able to do those things. So it's through that healing process of, yes, I've done these things. I have forgiven myself for those things. I have not, I am not going to minimize the experiences of somebody else because yeah, those things hurt them. And I've learned from those things to know that I know that myself now would never do the things that past me has done. I have grown into the person who I am now, and I will continue to grow into somebody else that hopefully in 10, 15 years, I look back at this version of Sean and I'm like, ugh, I don't like that he did some of those things. And that's kind of what we're hoping for is we want people to be able to heal and grow um, because men, when we learn that some of the behaviors that were taught growing up that are okay or acceptable aren't okay or acceptable, we can learn to not do those things. But then we have also learned not to teach our future sons, nephews, kids that we coach that those behaviors were acceptable or okay. We can break that cycle that you talked about, Brad, to hopefully create a future where we don't see men perpetrating violence as much. And that's really what we're hoping for. And I think every man who does his healing work, it benefits him. It's going to benefit the people around him. I like to think of it as at least, at least in a, on a theoretical basis that the the healing any healing work that a man does working on the violence is going to prevent another act of violence in the future and you know it's easy for cycles of violence to per, to perpetuate and even accelerate but i also think it's very possible for these cycles to be broken and that with a, it would take a lot more momentum of men doing healing work from the violence that they've experienced to really make a, you know, a wide scale change. But I like to think that there really is that possibility that it could spread quickly and that the amount of violence in the world in general could be, could be lessened a great deal by men doing their healing work. And I think it's so important for for that to happen right now in the world i think we need men to do their healing work so badly mm-hmm. yeah yeah so speaking of men's healing work brad you have a book that could be a useful tool for men looking at doing some healing work want to talk to our audience a little bit about that yes i'd love to so i wrote a book called the peaceful man within yourself heal the patterns the intergeneral intergenerational patterns of male-on-male violence. And this book is based on my own experiences with violence. It tells my own stories in, in the spirit of bringing what is so often in the shadows into, into the light of day and to encourage and inspire other men to become aware of and share their own stories And then I also share um, in the second and third parts of the book, some somatic practices, uh, body-based practices and contemplative practices to at least give men a a start with with their healing work. And it's available on my website, peacefulmanbook.com. And you can also find it on Amazon, The Peaceful Man. 
Awesome. And I will make sure that I have links in the show notes as well for those interested in looking at getting that book. Um, and Brad, do you have any socials that you want to throw out to our audience? Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list uh, or my follow me on Instagram through my through my website. That's the easiest way to find me. Awesome. And I'll make sure I have links to those things as well in the show notes too for our audience. Um, but thank you, Brad, for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm sure our audience has as well. And thank you all for listening today. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at TouchySubsPod. Please email us any questions, comments, or concerns to TouchySubjectsPodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and follow us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects. <laughs>